Daniel chapter 8, one more time uh, this morning, if you'll turn there with me. We're, Lord willing, we're going to be finishing the chapter this morning. I don't see any reason why we wouldn't, but that's the goal for today. So in Daniel chapter 8, Daniel has been given a vision in this chapter, a vision concerning the future. And it's the future, everything in this vision to Daniel is future. If you remember, Daniel is writing during the time period of the Babylonian captivity. And specifically, this vision comes to him during the last 12 years of that kingdom, during the time of Belshazzar's reign. And he has this vision, and what he's seeing are events that will take place over the course of the next 350 years. Beginning with the Medo-Persian Empire that takes over after Babylon has been conquered. In fact, they're the ones that conquer Babylon. And he sees the kingdom represented by a ram that has two uneven horns. Then he sees the Greek Empire, led by Alexander the Great, come flying in from the west and conquer the Medo-Persian Empire, wiping them out and establishing an even greater empire. Then, as we know from history, Alexander the Great dies suddenly, and he's replaced over time by four generals who divide up his kingdom and each take control of a portion of the kingdom that Alexander conquered. The Greek Empire lasts for quite some time in this manner in these four divided areas, and then around 175 BC, a man comes out of one of those four portions of the Greek Empire a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. He comes on the scene out of the Seleucid dynasty, and he rises to power by means of deceit. If you remember, we mentioned last time that he should not have been king, but he manages to get on the throne. And he turns his attention towards Egypt. His battles with Egypt are are met with mixed results, mostly because Rome already has some influence in Egypt, and he's, reforced, and he's forced to retreat time and again back into Palestine. And it's in Palestine that he does most of his notorious and despicable work against the nation of Israel. Daniel describes Antiochus' actions in verses 9 through 12, which we looked at in detail last time. It said there, And out of one of them came forth a, a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. This small horn, again, is Antiochus Epiphanes, the man who came out of one of the four divisions of the Greek Empire. He grew exceedingly great and powerful. He ended up focusing his attention on the beautiful land, and we noted that was the land of Israel. It said in verse 10, And it grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper." In his vision, as Daniel is seeing this, Daniel sees this horn grow up toward the sky and knock down some of the stars from the sky, the celestial bodies, so that they fall down to the ground and are trampled. 
And we spent a fair amount of time in our last study talking about how this referred to the believing Jews. And, and we looked at other passages, including Daniel chapter 12, where the imagery of stars and God's people are used together. And this would have been a familiar reference to the Jews, to refer to them as stars. And this indicated the persecution of Antiochus that he caused upon the Jews. Now, not to go into all the same detail that we did last time, but some of the things that he did was he, he tore up and he burned every copy of the law. It was not allowed to be anywhere in Israel. He made, the, he made, the, um, uh, he made circumcision illegal. No one could be circumcised. He made sacrifices in the temple illegal. He did everything he possibly could to take the Jews and their system and Hellenize them, right? Make them followers of the Greek religion and culture. He set up worship of the Greek gods in the temple. He instituted the practice of temple prostitution within the walls of the temple of God. And he even sacrificed a pig on the altar and he spread its blood all over the walls and he made the priests of the temple drink the blood and eat the meat of that pig. This man had absolutely no regard for the people of God and even worse, he had no regard for God himself. But as horrible as all of this was, and it was, it was allowed by God to happen. And why would God allow this to happen? Because of the sin of the nation of Israel, because of their transgression. Because they were under judgment by God. They were given over to this evil and vile leader. And this was all part of punishment for their sin. And what was their sin? There were, there were many in the nation, but one of the things that Israel did over and over and over again, time after time, was that they would worship and they would serve other gods. Something that they were warned of time and time again, even way back before they took possession of the land for the first time. Way back in, in Deuteronomy, if you want to turn there, I want to look at a portion of Scripture in Deuteronomy 29. God warned the people through Moses that there would be consequences for turning to other gods. And in Deuteronomy chapter 29, down in verse 22, we'll start, we'll look at a section here. We see a portion of what God told the Jews. He said, now the generation to come, your sons who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a distant land, when they see the plagues of the land and the diseases with which the Lord has afflicted it, will say, all its land is brimstone and salt, a burning waste, unsown and unproductive, and no grass grows in it like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord God overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. And all the nations shall say, why has the Lord done thus to Israel, to this land, sorry? Why this great outburst of anger? Then men shall say, because they forsook the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they have not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore the anger of the Lord burned against that land to bring upon it every curse which is written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them with their land in anger and in fury and in great wrath and cast them into another land as it is to this day. So way back 
then, from almost the very beginning, they were warned that there would be consequences that would come upon them if they went after other gods. Right? He said at the very first, the generation that is to come. He was talking to them about this is going to happen in the future. This is going to be something that happens from time and again. There would be consequences. That's what they're being told here. Now turn over to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 25. So from Deuteronomy to Jeremiah, there's a lot of time that is passed, right? Jeremiah was a contemporary of Daniel's during the Babylonian captivity. And when he's writing, we see some of this that was warned about before coming to pass. Jeremiah 25, look at verse 4. And the Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, again and again, but you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear, saying, Turn now everyone from his evil way and from the evil of your deeds and dwell on the land which the Lord has given to you and your forefathers forever and ever. Verse 6. And do not go after other gods to serve them and to worship them. And do not provoke me to anger with the work of your hands, and I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, in order that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own harm. What does it take? They had the prophets over and over again. The same message coming time and time again. Do not go after other gods. It's kind of like telling your kids over and over and over again to do something and over and over and over again. They say, yeah, okay, I won't, I won't do that ever and ever again. And then what happens? Then they do it again, right? It's the same type of exasperating thing. Well, here is Israel in the position of doing it again. And now the judgment comes to pass. Jeremiah tells them, of the captivity, the captivity which will begin the time of the Gentiles in which we've been looking. The entire time from captivity all the way until the final days of the tribulation when Jesus Christ comes again, returns the second time. So during this time, there will be judgment. What kind of judgment is there? Well, all kinds of judgment. I didn't read it before, but back in Deuteronomy, in the chapter previously, chapter 28, the chapter starts off talking about the blessings that will come to them for being obedient, but then it goes into detail about the curses that God will bring down on Israel due to their disobedience, their failure to follow God's commands. And and a lot of those things are not for the weak-hearted. It talks about famines, it talks about sicknesses, it talks about enemies that will come in and take their livestock and oppress them in their own towns. And in fact, there are times that the sieges will be so bad and last so long that it says that they will resort to eating their own dead. And then at the end of chapter 28 of Deuteronomy in verse 62, it says, Then you shall be left few in number, whereas you were as the stars of heaven for multitude, because you did not obey the Lord your God. There's our stars reference again. They were as numerable as the stars, yet there will be left only few in number, it says, because of the judgment that comes upon them due to their own sins. 
And as we look at verse 12 again of Daniel chapter 8, at least in part, that's what we see when it says, and on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice. Because of their sin, because they did not obey the Lord, they are given over to this horn. That horn is Antiochus Epiphanes. And Antiochus Epiphanes prospered for 2,300 days, it says, almost six and a half years. He was allowed to do this. He was allowed to wreak havoc against the people of God, flinging the truth to the ground, and he instigated this in Israel. And then at the end of that time, the Maccabean revolt occurred, and the Greeks were then driven out of Jerusalem. Throughout history... This has been going on. The Jews have not had peace. They have not had any real peace living in the land of promise since before the captivity. Uh, They may go through periods where things are better for a time, but then it all comes tumbling down again. You realize today that they have only been back in their land as a nation for what, around 70 years, close to 70 years And they still don't have peace. And this is still going on even today. There's an article I just read this last week about how Iran is now testing ballistic missiles in that area. And this is going to continue until the Lord returns, the remnant, until the remnant of Israel are saved. And this is all part of the discipline, all part of the curse of God. And along with this, there are men who will arise against them as part of their persecution, and they will, and they will rise throughout time. Jesus told the disciples in Matthew 24, 24, that false Christs and false prophets will arise. The apostle John says in 1 John chapter 2, that even now many antichrists have arisen. And we can see this throughout time, even in our own days, where people have come claiming to be from God, even claiming to be God. I looked it up. There's even someone in Australia, an IT guy in Australia, and I don't remember his name, who claims to be Jesus Christ. And he has a girlfriend named Mary, who, of course, that must be Mary Magdalene, right? But David Koresh's, Charles Manson's, people like that. There have been no end to the people that have claimed divinity or have claimed a close tie to divinity, thus proving themselves to be false prophets, even false messiahs. And what we see with some of these men, and Antiochus is one of them, along with Alexander, is that they are a type of the one who is to finally come. The military conquests of Alexander representative of the military conquest of the final world ruler, Antichrist. The wicked character, the evil persecution of Antiochus represents the wickedness and evil that the Antichrist will inflict upon Israel at the time of the end during the tribulation. And why do I say that? That it's representative, that they are a type of Antichrist. Well, it's because of the scope of this vision. We're going to see in our study today as we wrap up the 8th chapter of Daniel, that the interpretation of this vision reaches out into the future. And not only Daniel's future, right? Because I mentioned before that this was all in Daniel's future. But there is a part of this that we'll, be see, that we'll see that is reaching out into our future as well. This vision is not all future, some would say, 
nor is it all in the past, as others would say, but it has implications in both our past and our future, and we'll see that as we go through this. Throughout the last chapters of the book, we'll see that the Antichrist, the final world ruler, will be the focal point of many of the things that Daniel sees. And before Israel can finally walk into the kingdom of God, they will have to suffer through this man first. Now I want to start our study in Daniel chapter 8 by reading verses 13 to 14 again. And we looked at these briefly last time, but there's something that else that I want to see in these verses today. It says, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply, while the transgression causes horror, so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. And we looked at these verses last time in order to get the time frame of the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes, 2,300 days. The end of which time, again, the, the temple was restored uh, by Judas of Maccabeus. But what we didn't talk about in great detail was who was speaking here. Suddenly in this vision, there are at least two more beings presented that we mentioned, but we kind of skipped over. One holy one is speaking to another holy one. Well, who are these holy ones? Well, we mentioned last time that these are angels that appear in this vision. And just like in Daniel's last vision, when it comes time for the interpretation, angels are introduced into the equation. They come into the picture here. In this instance, they serve to ask the question that must have been on Daniel's mind. How long can this last? How long could this possibly go on? And the answer comes from these angels, at first speaking to one another, but then the reply comes directly to Daniel. Daniel is obviously the recipient of this knowledge, and the one to whom this has been given, and here that becomes even clearer. Now having seen this, seen this vision, seen these things that we've been talking about in detail, Daniel's confused. We've gone through talking about what these things have meant, and we've skipped ahead a little bit to see them in the interpretation as well, but Daniel hasn't had that luxury at this point. He doesn't know what all these things mean. So we look at verse 15, and it says, And it came about when I, Daniel, had seen the vision that I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. So Daniel has witnessed all of this, the ram, the goat, all the horns, and guess what? It doesn't make sense to him. He's slightly confused about this. Who wouldn't be, right? You see this dream that has rams and goats and horns that break into four pieces? But we've already, seen, we've already spent a couple of weeks going over the details that he's just given, moving through Scripture. We have the benefit of history to see some of these things, but Daniel is consumed, he's consumed this in probably the space of just a few minutes or hours or who knows how long this vision is taken. But he doesn't know what it means. So he's seeing it all laid out in front of him, but he doesn't have a clue as to how to understand it. But fortunately for him and for us, God doesn't leave him hanging here. Standing before Daniel, still in the vision, is one who looked like a man, it says. And you note that it doesn't say that he was a man. It says that he looked like a man. He had the appearance of a man. The word for man here is the, Greek word, or the Hebrew word geber, 
a word that means not just a man, but it means a mighty man or valiant man. And we might say this is a man's man and risk being accused of toxic masculinity, but you get the idea. It's a man's man. In other words, this doesn't convey that there was just some guy standing there, but there was some, something impressive, someone, something different about this being, this person that's standing in front of Daniel, and that Daniel recognized that. Verse 16, and it says, And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of Uli, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So Daniel now hears another voice a voice that seems to come out from over the waters of the Ulai, the canal next to which this has all taken place. And there is no one around, no person or animal or voice that this voice seems to come from. In fact, it's clear that it's the voice of a man that he hears, but it doesn't say that he sees anybody else around. Now, there's some debate on this, and there's probably no way to be absolutely sure, but I believe what he's hearing here, this is God's voice. This is the voice of God talking to Gabriel. Others say that it may be just another angel, but you have to ask if it were, why wouldn't that angel would be, be seen here as well? And you also would have to ask who would, what other angel would have the authority to be telling Gabriel what to do. Now, I believe the most likely answer to this is that the voice that he's hearing is the voice of God. God is commanding the angel Gabriel to reveal this vision to Daniel to interpret it so that he can understand what all these things mean. And a couple of interesting things to note about Gabriel is that, first of all, this is the first time that an angel has been named in Scripture, that we see that, the first instance of that. Gabriel's name is a compound of two Hebrew words. The last part of it, El, is the Hebrew word for God, but the first part is the word Geber, which is the word that we just talked about, which means mighty man. So Gabriel stands before Daniel with the appearance of a mighty man, and that makes perfect sense because he's the mighty man or the mighty one of God. And God commands Gabriel to interpret this vision. And I just want to say here, many people like, many people have a hard time struggling portions of Scripture. This would probably be an instance of part of one of those portions because they don't understand it, because it's too hard to understand. And especially books and chapters like we're studying here now, people look at those portions of Scripture and say, I don't, I'm not going to read that on my own, that hurts my head. Daniel receives this vision from God, and he just doesn't get it. He doesn't understand it. It's difficult for Daniel as well. But he doesn't give up on this portion of Scripture. He doesn't give up on this vision. He doesn't look at it and say, oh, that, that just doesn't make sense. That's too confusing. I'm going to splash some water on my face and try to forget about it. There's rams with lopsided horns. There's goats with one horn that splits in the four horns, stars falling to the ground. That, that hurts my head. No, what does it say in verse 15? It says, he sought to understand it. He wanted to know the meaning. He was looking to understand what was being communicated to him here. And what does God do? He's going to provide the answer. There should be no doubt in our own minds that God wants us to understand his word. He didn't give his word to us as a puzzle book 
or as a mystery novel. He desires for us to understand what he has communicated to us in the Bible. And make no mistake, he's communicating very specific things to us through his word. Not just ethereal ideas that we can take and we can twist around and we can do whatever we want to with them. God has given, uh, has Gabriel reveal the contents of this vision to Daniel. It's clear that he had specific things in mind for the things that he was showing to Daniel. It was meant to communicate something specific to him. You notice that he doesn't leave Daniel with the vision and have Gabriel say, now Daniel, you interpret it any way that seems best to you. You take what you've seen and you just come up with any idea that you want. You decide what this means for you. You let others decide what it means to them. That's not what he does. And that's not how God communicates with us. Our job as the children of God is to seek the meaning of his word. Seek out what it really means, what it truly means, what he truly means for us to know, not whatever seems best for my situation or for me to interpret or whatever might seem relevant to my situation today. And you understand, as believers, we have the greatest helper that the world has ever known, right? We have the Holy Spirit himself, God indwelling us to provide us with understanding into his word. Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2.12, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God. As believers in Jesus Christ, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us who works to give us understanding into the things of God, and that includes the word that he's communicated to us. And if we truly seek after the meaning, study the word, seek to understand it, we'll find that God is more than willing to give us the answer, provide us with that understanding. And that comes through study, it comes through prayer, it comes through the teaching of men that God has gifted into the church. All of those things the Holy Spirit uses to reveal his word to us. Now, we can't expect Gabriel to come knocking on our door or to look up and see Gabriel standing before us, nor can we expect God to send us visions and dreams today. And I know that there are people today that are expecting exactly that, but that's not going to happen today. In Daniel's case, before the time of direct revelation was closed, this is how God provided the answer to him. Um, but we're not going to get that today. But back to Gabriel. Gabriel was the angel that God used to communicate important messages. There are only two angels named in the Bible, Gabriel and Michael. There's, there's Lucifer too. Um, you, if you count Lucifer, there's three, but I'm not going to count him for our purposes. So Gabriel and Michael. And we see both of them in this book. And it goes to show that what God communicated to and through Daniel is of extreme importance here. Gabriel was God's spokesman. You might call him God's PR man. Whenever God had something extremely important to announce, he went to Gabriel. The coming of John the Baptist, announced by Gabriel. The coming of Jesus, Gabriel again. So there's an extremely important message that's coming here. And the angel Gabriel has been commanded by God to reveal it to Daniel. And then in verse 17, Gabriel comes over to Daniel to carry out this task. 
So he came near to where I was standing, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. So Gabriel approaches. Daniel falls on his face. He's, he's frightened. Literally, he's terrified of what's going on here. Now, what's he afraid of? Is he afraid of the angel? Is he afraid of Dan, uh, Gabriel? I think there's a sense of awe at the sight of Gabriel, probably more than a little intimidation about what's going on. Daniel understands that something very important is happening here. And if you'll remember back in the first verses of the chapter, there's already been indication that Daniel feels unworthy to be receiving such important revelation from God. But I think primarily the reason that Daniel is frightened here has to do with the vision itself. There's a whirlwind of information to what he's trying to process here. And when the mighty man of God comes over to him, that's when his knees start to buckle. And that's borne out in the response that Gabriel has to him. He says, but he said to me, son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. And he starts to comfort Daniel by making him understand the scope of this vision. And this is really where we see the the reach of the things that this vision represents itself. The first thing that Gabriel is telling Daniel is that this reaches out to the end times. This is not a short-term or a near-term prophecy. While there are elements that do have shorter or near-reaching effects, the main thrust of what has been revealed here is to give Daniel and thus the nation of Israel a clearer understanding of the last days, of what's in store for Israel all the way to the end. Does this serve to comfort Daniel? Well, not exactly. You see his reaction again when we go to verse 18. Now, while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand upright. So you see Daniel's reaction to this. The words really don't make it any better for him at this point. Daniel faints. He flat out faints. Remember, this vision was coming to him while he was awake. So he really didn't fall asleep. But within the vision, he just took a nosedive into the dirt. So that Gabriel has to come over and stand him up. Gabriel has to help him stand up within his vision. So in verse 17, he's terrified. He falls down to his knees has his face to the ground. Then he finds out that this revision pertains to the times of the end, and he just collapses the rest of the way, face first. This is Daniel's reaction to what God is communicating to him, to what has been revealed to him. Yes, the circumstances are unique, even extreme, but you get a sense of the reverence and of the respect that Daniel has for what's being presented to him, to what's in front of him. And when I see this, I can't help but ask myself, do I have the proper sense of reverence and respect for God's word? Now, I don't think that every time I open God's word, I have to fall on my face and faint, or that that is what should happen. But I do think that I need to approach God's word with an anxious heart, a respectful attitude, and even a sense of awe at the prospect of reading what God has revealed 
to us. And then also being given understanding through the ministry of the Holy Spirit who indwells me. And I hope, we, I hope we realize it's a magnificent honor that we've been given as believers in Jesus Christ to even be able to read God's word, that God has communicated his word to us, given it to us, so that every single one of us has a copy of what God wants to communicate to his people. So it's, a, it's, an, it's an honor to even read it, much less be given the means also to understand his word and to use his word in our everyday lives. So when I see Daniel's response to this, that's the first thing that makes me think, is that just the awe and the respect that he has for what God is communicating to him. So back to Daniel. Gabriel revives him, stands him on his feet, and then continues on with the explanation in verse 19. It says, and he said, behold, I am going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. Here you go, Daniel. I'm going to explain this for you. But keep in mind that this is going to be dealing with the final period of the indignation. And again, he says that it's the time of the end. Is that the same as the indignation? What's that? It's the wrath, the wrath of God, yeah. So indignation simply refers to God's wrath. And, there, and that has to do with this entire time frame that we've been seeing, otherwise known as the time of the Gentiles. So this, this whole time of indignation, um, now it's going to get worse, so the wrath will increase when we get to uh, the seven-year tribulation, which we're not going to get into today, but when we get into chapter 9, we'll talk about that. Um, but it's basically that it's, it's during this time that God is pouring out his wrath upon Israel. And that will continue into the tribulation. But this entire time is the time of the indignation. But that's not all that he says. He says that it's the final period of that indignation. Indicating a latter time, the end of that time. As you can imagine, there are many different opinions on what this means and that accounts for the many different interpretations that people have of this chapter. But what I'm convinced of is that this is referring to all uh, that Daniel is seeing has implications that reach out until the time of the tribulation and the time when the Antichrist is in power. Even though there are more immediate results to this as well, which we've talked about over the last two lessons with um, our discussion on Alexander and our discussion on Antiochus Epiphanes. And really, what's seen with the next three verses um, of the interpretation as well. Now, we've also looked at these, these next three verses in our previous studies because in them, Gabriel reveals to Daniel exactly what some of this imagery pertains to. But we'll read them again to be thorough. So look at verse 20. The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. And the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. And the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. And the broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. Now, there's no question, again, as to what this portion of the vision is representing. 
because Gabriel tells him right here. That's what we've been talking about all along. Not only that, but our knowledge of history shows that this all took place. This has all taken place and it was all true. And, and history is not necessarily the deciding factor for interpreting Scripture, but it does show us or offer proof to our minds that all these things came about just as God said that they would. However, there's one issue. These things that he's talking about right there did not happen during the final phase of the indignation. Well, how do we know that? Because the final phase hasn't happened yet. Remember our timeline from chapter 7. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome, and then the revived Roman Empire, right? That was from chapter 2 as well. The final period of the indignation will not occur until the time of the revived Roman Empire, which has not yet happened. We haven't seen the revived Roman Empire yet. And so somehow we have to account for the literal fulfillment of this passage in the historical sense in the past, as well as account for the literal fulfillment of this passage in the prophetical sense in the history that will take place in the future. Now keep in mind, Daniel had an advantage over us at this point in time. I mean, he had many advantages, but just in this, as confused as he was, he was seeing all of this as down the road, right? So you have Daniel over here, and you have the near events happening here, and then over there you have Antichrist. As Daniel is standing here and he's seeing all these things, he's looking down in history at everything, and it's being presented to him. We, on the other hand, are standing here. So Daniel saw this happen, and this happened before us, but he also saw this happen, which is future yet for us. So now we're looking at part of it here and part of it here. Some of it's in our past, some of it is in our future. So we're kind of caught in the middle of what Daniel is seeing. We have the position of being able to see portions of this that have already been fulfilled, but also portions that have not. And this gets tricky because some people start talking about dual fulfillment. They call it dual fulfillment. But you have to use caution when using that phrase or that term because it can mean different things. And anytime you start getting into some of these phrases that people use, you have to start asking, what do you mean by that? It doesn't mean, dual fulfillment doesn't mean that the imagery of the vision applies to multiple people or multiple places. The vision itself has a definite application to real people and real events. The ram is not two different nations. It's the Medo-Persian Empire. The little horn is not both Antiochus Epiphanes and the Antichrist. It grew out of a single nation and is a single figure. It was Antiochus Epiphanes. So that's not what we mean when we say dual fulfillment. I mean, it may be what some people say it mean, but that's not what I mean if I, if I use it. But what we're really seeing here is that the interpretation of the vision goes beyond the elements of the vision. 
The vision pertains to certain events that have taken place in a historical setting to us. But the interpretation as presented by Gabriel crosses beyond these events to give us insight into the future state of what lies beyond that. In other words, Gabriel shows Daniel not only these coming events with the kings and the kingdoms that come with them, but he goes beyond to show him how those kings represent, or I've used the term before, are a type of what will occur at the end times. So the dual fulfillment means that there is an aspect to what these things represent that will carry over to a point in time in the future. And that's what we see in verses 23 to 26. If you look with me at verse 23, and it says, And in the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise insolent and skilled in intrigue. The latter period of their rule. Well, whose rule is this? Well, from the immediate context, we have the four horns. The four dynasties that came after Alexander died in Greece, and this can fit Antiochus. But ultimately, there is another ruler who will come at the latter period of another four kingdoms as well. And that is Antichrist coming at the end of the Roman Empire, the rise of Antiochus, is a showing or a representation of that final uprising. And we see this same association throughout this section. Antiochus was skilled in intrigue. He did arise as a king. But during the tribulation period, this will characterize the Antichrist as well. And even on a greater scale, it will be magnified. He will arise as one who takes the throne by intrigue, through deceit, fooling the nations, making treaties for peace with Israel, lying through his teeth. He comes in during the time uh, of God dealing with the transgressors. And we talked last time about how God was dealing with Israel because of their sin. But the culmination, the final culmination of this will not occur until the tribulation the final seven-year period before Christ returns. That's when the transgressors will have run their course. It is that seven-year time period when Israel's punishment will be severe, it will be final, and it will be finally finished under the reign of Antichrist. So from this verse, we see how, yes, this applies to Antiochus, but really what Gabriel is telling Daniel here has ultimate fulfillment yet in the future. And that carries on here. Look at verse 24. And it says, And his power will be mighty, but not by his own power. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. As we go through these, it becomes more and more apparent that this points towards the Antichrist. As we see the similarities that Daniel talks about and John talks about when it comes to the Antichrist. In Revelation chapter 13, we have Antichrist rising and the dragon, Satan, is the one who gives him his authority. His power will be mighty, not by his own power. We see it say here for Daniel. John tells us that the Antichrist makes war with the saints and overcomes them and he has authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation. 
He will destroy to an extraordinary degree. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And you see the similarities between the two. These words that Daniel is speaking, or that Gabriel is speaking to Daniel, reach out to that time of the final ruler. And we talked quite a bit about how he will wage war with the saints and he will persecute them beyond any normal degree. And when talking about this period of time, when Antichrist is in power and this persecution goes on, Jesus says this in Matthew 24, verse 20, or verse 21. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. There's a reason that the Bible is very specific that with the last three and a half year portion of the tribulation, and that's because it has to be. There has to be a limit on this time period because if there wasn't, the Antichrist would be successful in destroying everyone and everything. Antiochus was bad. There's no doubt about that. He was a horrible person. He was a madman. And we talked about many of the things that he did. But the Antichrist will be multiple times worse than Antiochus Epiphanes. Look at verse 25. It says, And through his shrewdness he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence, and he will magnify himself in his heart, and he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes but he will be broken without human agency. He will be an arrogant, self-gratifying megalomaniac. He will be so powerful, he will have so much authority that he will magnify himself. God will allow him to reign. Satan will give him his power, and yet in his mind, it will all be by his own doing. We've seen this time and again in our study in Daniel the powerful that take all the glory for themselves. All these rulers that we've seen, the common theme is that they all set themselves up to be God. He will be shrewd. He will be a deceiver. We'll see more of that in chapter 9. But look over at verse 27 of chapter 9 for just a minute. Well, this will be a little foreshadowing for coming weeks. Verse 27 says, And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. He will make a covenant with Israel. He will put them at ease, and then midway through this seven-year covenant, he will bring persecution upon them. Again, Antiochus may have done some of this to a degree, but the Antichrist will make what he did pale in comparison. The last part of verse 25 shows just who is ultimately in view here. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. Antiochus directly opposed God by putting it into sacrifices. Verse 11 told us that he magnified himself to be equal with God, but he was not around when Jesus came on the scene. He was already long gone before the Prince of Princes came around. Only the Antichrist will dare to assemble his armies on a field to stand opposed to the Prince of Princes, the King of Kings, the one true Messiah. 
he will have puffed himself up so much that he's ready, he feels, he's ready to take on Jesus himself. So you see the amazing arrogance that this man will have. But in the end, he will be defeated, broken without human agency. No army will defeat him. God himself will be his judge. There will be no question that he was vanquished by Jesus himself. Not any other army, no other human being, no human army defeats him, just the prince of princes. And Revelation 19 tells us that he will cast him straight into the lake of fire that burns with brimstone. Interestingly enough, Antiochus also did die without human agency. He was killed by a sickness. He wasn't stabbed or anything else. He, he died of a sickness. So you see that there are similarities here, but the projection forward in time magnifies the meaning and the fulfillment until the end times. And, he, and Gabriel flat out says this pertains to the time of the end. As bad as the short-term fulfillments are, Alexander, then Antiochus, what's coming with Antichrist looms greater behind them like a shadow. And I look at this portion of scripture, or this portion of the vision, like looking at a figure, a person, or an object of some kind, and then behind the figure, you have the shadow that shines behind them on the wall, right? You know what I'm talking about? Our granddaughter this week, and anytime I get a chance to tell a granddaughter story. I'll, I'll, I'll do it. But our granddaughter this last week, we got a video of her. Somebody um, showed her how to make shadow puppets. First time she made shadow puppets, right? So you have this little tiny person here and on the wall behind her, you see she's making shadow puppets, right? But it's the same type of idea, right? You, what you see here, you see the little object in front and that's kind of the focus of, but then behind them, looming behind them, you see magnified the shadow, the thing that's, that's coming behind them. And so as Daniel sees this, he's looking at them both straight on. He sees the man in front, but he's also seeing the shadow looming behind him, making a much larger impact and is much greater in size and will have much, uh, much bigger consequences for the nation. Everything that the man does in front, the shadow does as well, but it will be on a much larger scale. And so the man in front, obviously, is Antiochus. Now, from Daniel's point of view, he probably understands this all as one event, right? Like I mentioned before, Daniel's standing here, and he's seeing all of this in front of him. So he probably did understand this as one event, but the shadow is actually showing him what's coming later, the Antichrist, and shows how much worse it's going to be. Gabriel finishes up in verse 26, it says, And the vision of the evenings and mornings, which has been told, is true, but keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. He verifies uh, the accuracy of what Daniel has seen that will come to pass. This is what will come to pass. This is definitely what is coming, Daniel. And what is Daniel to do with it? He says to keep it secret. Now, I don't know if everyone's translation says that, but that sounds interesting or sounds strange at first. Um, so why do I keep it secret? Why don't I tell anybody? But that's not the best translation of this. It really means to seal it up or to protect it, to keep it. He has been entrusted with it, with the intention of sharing it, not hiding it away. And what's truly wonderful is that this has been kept all this time 
here we are 2,500 years later or so, by the grace and the sovereignty of God, we still know what was revealed to Daniel in this vision. And if you think, how wonderful is that? Well, in verse 27, what's Daniel's response? After, after seeing this, how does Daniel respond? It says, then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Then I got up again and carried on the king's business, but I was astounded at the vision, and there was none to explain it. What did this do to Daniel? It made him sick, made him exhausted for days. This is Daniel's response to the prophecy of God, to the magnitude of this truth. He was sick for days. He understood the implications of it. He may not have understood all the fine details, but he understood the implications that this meant. There was persecution coming. There was tribulation coming for the nation of Israel. There were men coming who would have authority and dominion over Israel due to their transgression. And he had just been guaranteed by the angel Gabriel that this would assuredly come to pass. This wasn't a tell the people to repent. No, this was Gabriel saying, this is going to happen. Again, he may not have understood all the fine details. It says there was none to explain it. Daniel didn't know all the details about Antiochus. He didn't know the name Antiochus. He didn't know the name Alexander even. He had no clue as to who they were or as to what they would do. Daniel couldn't go to Wikipedia and look these guys up like we can do if we want to. All he knew was that they would bring judgment to the nation for their transgressions and it was going to be bad. The nation of Israel needed to know this. They needed to know what that this was coming their way, that there are people, um, they needed to know the details of this. There are people that we know today that need to know some of these things as well. Anyone who does not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, there are portions of this that will someday pertain to them. And we need to ask ourselves, are we prepared to tell them that? Do we understand that ourselves? Daniel says that there was none to explain it, which could literally mean no one understood it or no one regarded it. Part of Daniel's sickness could have been caused by the way in which he knew that no one would heed this vision or take it seriously. Certainly, it wouldn't have been the first time for Israel to disregard a prophecy of God. Even if I tell them about this, How are they going to react to it? The point is, it's important for us to understand these things, to know what's coming, so that we can take God's word and communicate it to people who also need to know it, helping them to recognize the need for a Savior. Daniel understood this. The importance of it brought him to physical exhaustion. What's our attitude toward our responsibility with God's word? Do we recognize the importance of the message that we have to share or do we disregard it and do we let opportunities slip by? I pray that we see God's word with the same reverence, the same importance, the same awe as Daniel had when he first received this vision. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you once again. We just give you praise, Lord, for another opportunity to be in your word and to be in this book. We just thank you, Lord, for the things that you communicated uh, through Daniel. 
We thank you, Lord, for all the things that we have um, throughout the uh, scriptures. But Lord, we thank you for these, these visions that we're studying. We thank you, Lord, for these uh, truths um, that we know will come to pass. And Lord, we just pray that we would have a proper sense of, of respect and, and awe for them, Lord, knowing that, that these are the things that are coming in the future. And Lord, there are so many people that need to be ready for these things that aren't. Um, pray, Lord, that you would help us to just be sharing the gospel around us, Lord. Help us to understand the importance of other people knowing your word, of knowing the truth of the gospel and knowing their need for a savior. Just pray, Lord, that you would help us to make that a priority in our lives. Lord, I thank you again for our study. Pray that you would be blessing us, Lord, as we, as we study through this, as we continue on in the coming weeks. And Lord, I pray that you'd be with us uh, in the next hour as well. As we hear the word taught, as we praise you, Lord, and worship you, just pray that uh, you would bless that time. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.